Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So, jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Uh, welcome back, my friends, to another incredible episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. I'm Daniel DiPiazza, and today we are talking about Web 3.0. What is it and why do we need it? You know, why is it here? In our last episode, we talked a bit about the differences between Web 1, Web 2, and Web 3. And I thought it was worth revisiting mostly because you know, the entire context for this show is how things are changing. That new wave that I'm referring to is the tide that's coming in. In fact, the tide that's already come in. And the unfortunate thing is that most people don't see the wave coming until it's already crashing them on their face. And so what we want to do with the new wave of technology is we want to surf it. We want to ride it. We don't want to be only noticing that we're in it when we're getting smacked by it. We want to take advantage of the momentum for ourselves. And of course, the great thing about this is... You don't have to be a genius to succeed in a bull market, you know. And although there are turbulences that are going on right now in the financial market and the economy, uh, overall, we're going through a massive positive overhaul. There will be some fallout for sure, but there's a massive positive overall happening in the financial system. Uh, just because the little person is going to be able to finally get in at the ground floor of so many of these things that are going to be very powerful for building wealth. And at the core of that is this changeover from Web 2 to Web 3. So let's go through this again. What really is the difference between Web 1, Web 2, Web 3? I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of Web 1 is the phrase, you've got mail. I remember when getting an email was something to celebrate. You know, it almost seems like 100 years ago, I can still remember a time when I was excited to look in my inbox. Now I dread it above all things. And you know, the feeling of sitting down at my grandmother's Gateway 2000, loading the latest version of American Online, and connecting to the early internet, which at that time we called the World Wide Web, still gives me shivers of nostalgia into my 30s. You know, that screech sound of that 56.6k dial-up modem was like a shot of adrenaline, some espresso right to my little brain. And the feeling was, honestly, it was one of endless possibilities. You know, this was Web 1.0. This was the very beginning. This was when regular people could just start to connect with each other from computer to computer. And the premise of the internet back then was simple. You know, it was really just to connect and to inform. And never before this time was it possible to instantly communicate with people all over the world and to share information and to make friends with so many different people outside of your immediate vicinity. I mean, think about now how many of the friends that you have that don't live in your immediate town or right in your neighborhood. You know, probably the majority of them. I joke with my friends that I have more people that I talk to Uh, you know, across the ocean than I do across the street. I have more friends who I've never met than friends that I have. And that's kind of weird, isn't it? It's kind of scary. But this wasn't even possible before the 90s, you know, and I'm a 90s baby. Well, really 88, but 90s were my formative years. And at that stage of the internet, we didn't really even have commerce online, you know. 
people were pretty skeptical if the online thing was even going to last. Uh, just like people are skeptical of cryptocurrency now, people were skeptical of whether the internet was actually going to last. And I remember my great-grandfather saying, you know, he said, why do I need to read something on the computer when I have a newspaper? And honestly, that's not a bad question for someone who's looking in the past. But when, you know, we're entrepreneurs, we look into the future. And uh, it's so funny that, you know, when he died at 99 years old, he was an avid iPad user. And he used to send me emails that would say at the bottom, sent from my iPad. And I just thought that was so funny that a man who was born in the 1920s, who uh, went through the Great Depression, who served in World War II bravely like a soldier, you know, died with the highest level of technology in his hands. And that really shows the, the arc of technology and the pace that we've gone uh, in the last 50 years, 60 years, you know, we've gone at a, a warp speed. And, you know, website 1.0, web 1.0 sites were, were static. Um, most of them didn't even have pictures. If they did have pictures, you know, that was really nice. You can even go back to some of these sites like Wayback Machine or some of these other like, you know, basically like internet museums where you can look back at old sites. I think you can even go to spacejam.com uh, and you can see the original Space Jam website. And I mean, it just looks... It just looks like you're like you're staring into the past because websites don't even look like that anymore. They're so much more dynamic now. They're so much more um, I don't know neurotic. <laughs> there's so much more. There's so much more. Period. Um, I mean, back in the day, if you even had a picture on a website, it took forever to load. I'm sure that if you're a younger generation Z listening to this, you might not even remember a time when a website took more than instantly to load. Oh, but my friend, we had times when we had to wait multiple minutes just for a page with pictures to load. I could I could click on the website, I'd have to walk away, go do something else and come back. I was going to say go get a cup of coffee, but I wasn't drinking coffee at that time. I'd have to go away and, you know, go do some homework or play with something else or, you know, go turn on the TV and come back and the page would be mostly loaded. I mean, it would load, you know, a couple of inches of, at a time on the screen because the data speed and the transfer speed was so slow. And usually you couldn't even go on the phone uh, in order to go on the internet. You could have to pick one or the other. I thought that rich households had two phone lines. You know, only rich households could be on the internet and be on the phone at the same time. That was the height of elegance. In fact, I used to be able to kick off my mom and my grandmother, kick them off the internet by going onto the phone and just pressing a bunch of numbers. I thought I was kind of like hacking them. And if someone was on the phone, you might remember this, if you can remember how back, how far back I am, you could pick up the phone and you could hear the internet dial tone, the, the internet screeching and the modem just acting on the line um, when you picked up the receiver because the phone line was completely monopolized by that. And, you know, when that buggy, chuggy, nasty, gross, pixelated online video came along, it was revolutionary. I mean, it looked like a, it looked kind of like a like a uh, like a crypto punk NFT, which we'll talk about later. But these websites, the video sucked, the pictures sucked, but it was revolutionary. And Web 1.0 was decidedly decentralized. You know, this was a place for individual creators to speak their minds and to collaborate. This version of the internet almost felt like a huge Reddit, in my opinion, honestly. And every website was kind of like a unique subreddit. You know, the, the primary mode of instant communication was through online chat rooms and they were all organized by topic. I don't know if you ever remember going in these AOL chat rooms, but no one knew what they were doing. We were all just happy to be there. It was so cool to be able to talk to someone in a completely different place across the world immediately. That was something we never had before. Even with phones, you know, it was so expensive to make international calls at that time, you know, to talk to people in different states or talk to people you didn't know, it just wasn't possible. And now finally, within a period of years, it was. And you know, at this time, data privacy wasn't really an issue because most people didn't really use their real names. You know, um, most people online were kind of just interacting as avatars and they weren't really exchanging sensitive information. I remember 
at the end of the early uh, at the end of the the nineties or the beginning of the early two thousands, I was on AOL Instant Messenger, and that was revolutionary again. I mean, if we thought chat rooms were were interesting, AOL Instant Messenger was basically early form text messaging, you know, but just on the desktop. And I remember I used to race home just to get to the computer to message my friends on AIM. You know, and uh, and it was it was a, a privilege to be able to use this at the time. It was so cool, and of course, your your screen name was never your real name. You want to make something cool up. So, what was mine? My first one on AIM was Silver Surfer five four eight eight. Don't ask me why. He wasn't my favorite superhero, and I I couldn't surf, but I thought it sounded cool. And my second one was Mister Bigglesworth one. Yes, yes, I'm dating myself because Austin Powers was probably around at that time, but. Nonetheless, uh, those were my uh, those were my screen names, and you know uh, I just really loved uh, being online. It was so fun. It didn't feel restrictive. It felt very expansive at that time. And in the early two thousands, uh, things began to change. You know, the average person began spending much more time online as essential services migrated to the digital world. You know, paying bills, shopping, reading the news. You know, all that getting entertainment became the primary purpose of the internet, and it felt good. You know, it still felt fun. It was a natural progression, and this change in the use of the internet correlated in lockstep with the continued innovation of the cell phone guys. And you know. What was once a brick tethered to a cord in the car? Do you guys remember car phones? Yeah, now that's real old. I bet you don't remember a car phone. It was like a little briefcase that had to stay in the car. And I think it connected to your car antenna. Um, what, what used to be that became lightweight and portable. I mean, flip phones, you know, they had sidekicks, they had the Palm Trail. Oh man, in college, my friend Mark had a Palm Trail with a stylus. I thought that shit was so futuristic. I mean, you could type on it, you could draw on it. It was so cool. Uh, and then, of course, the fully connected smartphone, complete with mobile apps. That was really the advent of the iPhone and other phones that followed it. And in my opinion, that was really the beginning of Web 2.0. You know, by the mid 2000s, the way that we were using the internet was evolving again. And the most important characteristic of this time was moving from the desktop to the mobile phone. And even more critically, from a decentralized landscape to a major centralization of the internet experience. The internet bubble got huge and it kind of burst. There were all these companies that were exploding, similar to what's happening now in Web3. And, you know, essentially, like what was left on the other side of that explosion was a few companies that were primed to take control of the web by giving the world so much value that it need not look elsewhere at all to get its internet fixed. And four of those big companies, which they're certainly not the only ones, but they are most definitely the most influential ones, in my opinion, are Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple. We call it GAFA, or we could call it FAGA, or we could call it AFUG, or you know, however you wanna, however you wanna acronym it. But it was through these four major lenses that the next 20 years of internet history would play out. And nearly every internet experience is touched by one of these four major players to this day. Maybe you can even add Gafan, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Netflix. You know, Netflix certainly creeped in there at the very end. And man, are they influential and will continue to be in the entertainment space and the streaming media space. But in the early days, we marveled at how these, these gentle, quote, gentle giants uh, made our lives easy and fun, you know, and how seamlessly they integrated with all the things we already wanted to do and all the things we needed. And we even kind of enjoyed the fact that they seemed to know what we wanted before we knew it. I mean, they really are predictive. They're predictive companies. They tell us what we want and 
God damn it, we want that. You know, at that time, the value equation made sense to us. You know, we got access to what trillions of dollars worth of technology that seemed to improve by leaps and bounds every year. You know, we were able to make more money more easily than ever with their tools and become much more productive. We were able to work from home. These tools were fun and free and easy to use, you know, from Gmail to, to Amazon Prime to Facebook to all the apps that came with the, you know, the Apple and the iPhone store. It all just really made sense. And these companies themselves were run by these iconoclastic leaders who seemed to be for the people, you know, brilliant college dropouts like Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg who were sent to, well, democratize information and opportunity. That's how we saw it. Then, you know, I will say this though, looking back on that time in the world, all that glitters ain't gold, okay? And we soon learned, or maybe we even just remembered that there are no free lunches. Everything has a price. And if you're not paying for the product, guess what, baby? You are the product. So I want you to let that one sink in. Because on the other side of the Web 2.0 panacea, we have seen dark shadows of power. We've seen control. And we've seen censorship take root right now in America, right now across the world. And what was once a free-for-all, you know, has very obviously revealed the true price of admission. And that's your data. And that's your privacy. And in some cases, it might be your freedom. And the centralization of the internet around these behemoths meant that they were in the primary position to learn everything about you. You know, Google knows everything that you're interested in based on your search history. Their algorithms read your emails. I hope you know that. And they read your documents, including, you know, the, the article that I made all the outlines for this show on. It's all in Google Docs. They know all that stuff. They read and see all that stuff. And they use that information to serve you targeted ads. And in that way, they control what you see and begin to shape your, your worldview. Uh, there is a great book by, uh, by, I believe his name is uh, Jared Lanier. And um, he basically talks about how the algorithms that, that, are served by these big companies, not only impact what we see, but also impact how we think because they are predictive and they are suggestive and they shape how our mind works. And you know, look, Google knows everything that you're interested in. They're, that's not gonna change because that's their business model. Amazon, on the other hand, knows your entire shopping history and has become so large that they've pushed out an untold number of independent competitors in the marketplace. I remember uh, my, one of my favorite uh, bookstores, Barnes & Noble, got pushed out pretty dramatically by, uh, by Jeff Bezos. And it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a dick move, but it's actually kind of genius if you think about it. I mean, he essentially killed brick and mortar bookstores with pricing and logistics only to recreate them in his own image via Amazon bookstores. Uh, and Barnes & Noble still exists. It's kind of on its last legs. Borders has been dead for a while. And this is chess, not checkers. It's very amazing what they've done. You know, logistically, they're incredible. Uh, um, practically, I have serious doubts about Amazon's ability to be benevolent to the world when they're this big and they're, have, they have this much control. And, you know, Facebook may be the most notorious perpetrator of the whole sell or be destroyed strategy via social media. Mark Zuckerberg has spent over a decade creating an interconnected social platform so sticky and so comprehensive that one dare not escape. And any competitors, they're just copied until they either scream uncle or they just give up. And every year, there are new reports of all the nefarious ways that that company uses your data to track to, to track you and to sell to you. We've heard about Cambridge Analytica. You know, if you're listening to this in 2021, there's more, quote, scandals coming out about Facebook. They've become 
too big for their britches in a lot of ways. And of course, I'm going to promote this on a Facebook platform as well because it's still a viable way to connect with people. But man, it has become, you know, the sword that cuts both ways. It definitely is a catch-22 in a lot of ways. Apple has done probably the best at retaining its white hat in all this, but to be honest, this trillion dollar company is not without fault. The main problem is, in my opinion, its sheer reach. You know, just about 50% of Americans use an iPhone and over a billion people worldwide use the device. And this gives them an incredible amount of personal information and an immense power to dictate our daily experience on the internet, especially even when it comes down to our locations. Think about, you know, how much data Apple has just from tracking where we move with our Maps app on a constant basis. Well, Google has a Maps app as well, but I mean, it's pretty astounding. And I think humans actually have a hard time understanding scale, but that scale is there and these companies hold the majority of it. So, you know, it's an interesting place to be in the world and an interesting place to be in history because the contributions that these companies made uh, and that, that they have made to the world, they're, they're indisputable and, and they're indisputably, indisputably positive in many ways. But we also have to ask ourselves at what point their, their loving embrace becomes a crushing grip. And I think many of us are coming to that realization now that maybe we gave a little bit more than we intended. And you know, as we look at the amount of corporate greed involved in these companies, you know, they're nearly total skirting of tax liability, the terrible working conditions uh, that are outside of the scope of this, this whole podcast and maybe we'll get into later, the amount of data that they harvest from us without our knowledge and the very real behavioral changes they affect within us. You know, many people are waking up to the possibility of a reimagined internet. And the truth is, the internet is already forming the new one, and it's right in front of our eyes, and it's called Web 3.0. And Web 3.0 promises a shift back to uh, the decentralized ideal of the early days you know, of the internet. And the difference here now is that instead of that dial-up modem, we're going to have speed. You know, We're going to have true anonymity. We're going to have data security at the forefront of an entirely new experience. And this is going to come in several forms. Uh, but one of the biggest forms of Web 3.0 technology is called blockchain. And this, is, this blockchain is going to affect many, many industries. And over the course of this this series, you know, the New Wave Entrepreneur podcast, we're going to talk to different experts in the blockchain space. We're going to dig apart what blockchain is and how it works and where it's applied. But let's just go basically into what it is. If you remember what Web 1.0 peer-to-peer networks like Napster or Kazaa, which I think I think rightfully so they'd be called Web 1.0, maybe they're Web 1.5, but these were these early peer-to-peer sites for sharing music. You know, these were the scandalous sites that at the time uh, enabled individual users to share music and data and other things across a network of connected computers. And you didn't need a central hub. They weren't going from one computer out to many. They were going from across many computers to each other. So it was a powerful web, a network effect. And the problem is with these with these different uh platforms, you know, these powerful media agencies of the day were scared of this technology because it fundamentally undercut their ability to monetize content and intellectual property, you know, which is a a lot of, which is a lot of uh, money. Let's put it that way. And honestly, they were right to be afraid, you know, peer-to-peer networks, we'll call them P2P networks, played a big part in taking down their record industry because users didn't need to pay for albums when they could just download individual songs, you know, and this was a fatal blow that many major companies never fully recovered from and are still reckoning with to this day. They still haven't fully recovered. And if you look at even, you know, even the newspaper industry, you know, the internet in its peer-to-peer way has decimated the newspaper industry and some newspapers are crawling back out of the hole, but it hasn't been good for media in general in all different forms. And blockchain is essentially the P2P of the future. 
this technology originally created for Bitcoin, you know, is a network of individual computers that allows users to quickly and anonymously transmit data or digital assets or even currency in a secure way that can be verified for everyone on the network to see. It's basically a network called a ledger, just like a big long receipt where everyone's transactions are recorded and there's no personal information, but you can see the address of the person that's transmitting that information or that data or that currency. So in that way, it's truthful, it's honest, it's transparent, it's built into the blockchain. And for all intents and purposes, blockchain is very, very hard to hack. It's very hard to change. There's no lying on the chain, basically. And this is going to eventually allow the average person to take control of their data back without relying on big institutions to hold on to that data for them. You know, this is going to apply to, to banking and personal communication, media, entertainment, and tons more, you know? I mean, just think about it like this. If you could securely store and send and receive money by yourself with no middleman, why would you need Bank of America or Chase or Wells Fargo? You know, if you could privately send messages with, without Google snooping over your shoulder, you know, without them reading your emails and looking at your, your texts and, and reading your docs, wouldn't you want to do that? You know, if you could buy something online without the fear of identity theft or getting hacked because it's not connected to your personal identity, wouldn't that be better? Uh, you know, the full scope of the applications of blockchain are unknown at this point because we're still in the early days. And that's what I want you to realize, guys. We're still in the early days. We're going to go into cryptocurrency in an upcoming episode. And one thing you need to know is that cryptocurrency is a piece of this new emerging Web 3.0 blockchain complete revolution. But cryptocurrency in itself is not the only piece of Web 3.0 that you need to know. And the scope of this application, uh, these applications goes further than even we can imagine now. But it's safe to say that everything is changing. And to be sure, you know, Web 3.0 is not going to solve every problem that's being created with the internet up to this point. Our lords and masters, GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, they are going to monopolize the digital world again as Web 3.0 takes effect. They're not going to give up their position lightly. You know, they're going to create new tools to work within this space. Um, because they want to retain as much power and information and control as possible. And because that's their business model. And even Mark Zuckerberg has said, you know, Facebook is going to be a, a company of the metaverse. You know, um, this evolution of technology will give the average person a new set of tools to create more private, more secure, and more personalized internet experience that Web 2 just didn't offer. And this is kind of, all this is leading to our adoption of the metaverse, which is the interconnection between physical and digital reality upon which humans are going to build a new layer of existence. It's going to allow us to live in the digital world in a different way because we're going to be able to basically make transactions with our digital selves as if we were our physical selves. We're going to be able to own pieces of the digital world. We're going to be able to store and, you know, and exist and, re and recreate and be part of this digital economy and this digital world in a way that we just can't possibly imagine now. And that's another podcast for another day. But this is where it's all going. And so today, I want you to soak in Web 3.0. In an upcoming podcast, we're going to be speaking to another expert on crypto and on Web 3, who's going to give some great feedback on what it means to truly go into this space. But today, I want you to digest this because it is a brave new world. There are so many new opportunities coming up for us. And if you have questions about Web 3, please, Hit me in the DMs on Instagram. 
This podcast is just the beginning. This episode is just the beginning in our extended conversation on the new wave. And when we're talking new wave financial and new wave tech, Web 3.0 is the crux of this. Under Web 3.0 is blockchain. Under blockchain is crypto. Under blockchain is our NFTs and DAOs and all these things that are new in terms you might not have ever even heard of before. And so this is something we must educate ourselves in now because it's easy to be scared of new things. It's easy to neglect the new things because they don't seem like they're mainstream yet. But as I've said in the past, the easiest way to succeed in the advent of a new industry is to be consistent in not just being a consumer of new information on the industry, but also being a producer and a creator in that new industry. So I encourage you to get involved with different projects, whether it's buying, uh, you know, different crypto coins, or, or well, I should say cryptocurrencies, uh, whether it's looking into NFTs and investing some there. And obviously, you know, I always say, take it with a grain of salt, do your own research. This is not financial advice, but get involved in these industries. And we'll talk more in following shows about how to do that. So if you like this, please give this podcast a review in whatever channel you're watching it on, whether it's the iTunes store, if it's on YouTube, Stitcher, uh, Spotify, whatever. Leave me a comment on that platform. Shoot me a message on Instagram at Daniel DiPiazza. And if you want all the newest information on the new shows we're dropping, new guests we're bringing on, programs I'm developing, or things that can help you in this new economy, please head over to alphamentorship.com where I'm putting all that stuff out for free. So that's all I got for today, guys. Much love. It's been fantastic talking to you. I'm so enjoying being back on the show with you again. Next week, we have a new guest coming up that I think you're really going to enjoy. So stay tuned for that. We're going to be dropping new podcasts every single week. And guys, guess what? The tide is rising. The water is warm. So jump in and let's ride this new wave.